afternoon. Thank you for joining the Feeding the Nine Billion session. Uh, my name is Itwa Ioha. I'm an MBA student at Said Business School here. And before I came to Oxford, I was a management consulting in management consulting for about four years. Um, but today I'm looking through the lens of my personal project called Eat Right Niger, um, which is an advocacy project that educates Nigerians on how to make better food choices. Uh, around nutrition and sustainability. So today's session is going to be addressing one of the grand challenges, or you might want to call them wicked problems, that are facing the world today. And that's how we're going to feed 9 billion people by 2050. So the Food and Agriculture Organization has established that we already make enough food to feed 10 billion people. Um, but then somehow, 1 billion people are still going hungry. And we have 20 million people who are at risk of starvation. And to top it off, by 2050, we'll have an additional 2 billion people to feed. So obviously, this is a massive issue. Um, and today, we're just going to be working through the complexity of it and looking at what the opportunities that arise from that issue are. So we're fortunate to have with us four very accomplished individuals um, who are looking at the issue from very different perspectives. And I'll just hand over to them to introduce themselves. So we have Elena from Snacked, we have Willem from Seymour, we have Tim of Pioneer, and then we have Robert from the World Food Program. Hi, I'm Alana. I am uh, one of the two co-founders of Snacked. And what we do at Snacked is make snacks from surplus produce, so that's stuff that would otherwise go to waste because it's too big, too small, too ugly, too abundant. Um, I brought some, if anyone wants to try some later. Um, How about now? <laughs> you can pass them around if you want. Um, yeah, so we just make healthy, nutritious fruit snacks to tackle food waste. And then um, similarly, we're also fighting plastic waste because we are not using plastic uh, packaging, but a material that behaves just like a fruit peel. Um, so it's compostable. You just put it in your compost bin with other food waste scraps. Um, and it, it disappears in about six months and just returns to the natural cycle. Um, so yeah, just making delicious snacks and fighting waste in all of its forms. Um, <clears throat> my name is Vidim, founder of Seymour. Um, we're turning seaweed into an everyday food. Uh, we do it by presenting seaweed as healthy, sustainable alternatives to the foods that we already know and love. So uh, seaweed pasta, seaweed bacon, seaweed wraps, and those of you that have eaten the wraps today, you were eating seaweed wraps. 50% of that wrap was seaweed. Um, so that's one of these. Oh, I don't need to pass it around. You already tasted, tasted it. Um, so why do we do it? Um, seaweed is the original superfood of this planet. And it's also the most sustainable food on the planet. And, since the, and as the Asians have known for a couple of hundred of years, it's also <clears throat> incredibly tasty. And I really met... We, I'm really glad that we connected now because I'm trying to get her packaging on my products as well. Hey there, so first of all, um, I want to thank the organizers for inviting us and having us here and addressing the topic. It's really cool and I think they're doing a fabulous job, so I think we can put that together. <laughs> How many of you actually tasted the wrap? would like to hear. Did you, did you experience that there was seaweed um, in? No? Okay, well, there you go. Well, that's how easy it is. It tasted a bit like fish, 
That's what people think. <laughs> if I wouldn't have told them, they wouldn't no, have said that. was after you told me that they were seaweed heads. Exactly. There you go. Psychological. <laughs> Already, so we're in the discussion. So I'm, I'm Tim. Um, as I said, I was working with Pioneers over the last years, which is we're doing a big entrepreneurial event every year in Vienna, in Austria. It's also a 100 million dollar venture fund, as well as a startup corporate consulting that we're doing there. Um, and and over last year, I actually founded the European Farm Society, which is focusing on uh, for-profit but also high-impact uh, companies. Farmers on the one side, we're trying to bring them together with the decision makers, investors, large corporations, institutions, so on, on the other side, to really address the big topics of environment, water, food, health, and energy. And to yeah, kick off this uh, discussion there, trying to see like where can um, party A can help party B, basically, to really uh, go into these yeah, big topics, basically. That's over there. Yeah. Uh, my name is Robert Hopp. I'm the Director of Innovation and Change Management for the United Nations World Food Program. Uh, the UN World Food Program is the largest humanitarian assistance agency in the world. We are present in 85 countries. Um, we reach between 80 and 100 million people in a year with some form of food assistance, and we have an operating budget of about $6 billion a year. Uh, it's our mandate to address the issue of hunger, and um, that comes in both the form of people affected by what we call chronic hunger, which is... Um, usually from childhood, living in a situation of poverty in which you uh, simply don't get enough uh, quantity or quality of food to eat. Um, and also acute hunger, which is people affected by emergencies and things. And um, we have traditionally provided assistance in the form of in-kind uh, food distributions, either purchased locally or imported internationally, depending on the case. But increasingly we're using cash assistance as well. And so in uh, 2017, we actually distributed $1.4 billion of cash to people um, in addition to the in-kind food uh, distributions. And so um, we, my role in, in the World Food Program is to drive an innovation culture. We created an innovation infrastructure with an in-house uh, accelerator that can in take in internal teams as well as external startups and we can help them work toward developing solutions that are going to have an impact on hunger in some way. Cool, thank you for being here. Um, so the discussion we're going to have today is going to be structured around um, three broad topics that we'll move through. So the first, we're just going to spend some time understanding what exactly is that state. So what was the complexity of the issue that we're facing here? And then second, we're going to look at the entrepreneurial approaches that people are taking to solve the issue from different angles. And then third, we'll be looking at the technological innovations that are going to help solve the problem at scale. Okay, so after that, then we'll open the discussion to the audience and then get some comments and questions from you guys. Cool, so to kick things off, I think we'll start with Robert. So because you're at the World Food Program, you're kind of situated at the center of this issue. So can you just give us kind of like a broad sense of what's at stake? And you've already started to give us kind of like a, a mapping of what's the issue. So. Sure, actually you mentioned it, because um, we have today an estimated 815 million people that are affected by food insecurity or living in food insecure situations. Um, most of those live in that chronic hunger that I mentioned, um, and the crazy thing about chronic hunger is um, if you are affected by um, Hunger, when you are from basically conceived in the womb until the first two years of life, that first thousand days of life, if you do not get the right 
quantity and especially quality of food, you will never recover physically or mentally in your entire life. And that's people affected by chronic hunger are affected by what we call stunting. And that stunting is, you can see it physically. Um, if I, I show you a picture of um, indigenous children from a village in Western Guatemala against an international benchmark, you'll see that they, they fall short of the international benchmark of weight for height for, for you know, children. Um, that's because they have not had enough to eat and what you don't see is their mental diminishment. Um, acute hunger right now is, uh, and sorry, let me just say on one thing on, the, on overall hunger. Um, we are, um, in the last 25 years, the globe has made progress against hunger because we are actually seeing a reduction in hunger from 1990. We had a billion people, and despite population growth, now we're at 815 million. So that's an overall trend of progress. But the last two years actually saw a slight reversal. So we went from 795 in 2015 to 815 million uh, people in 2017. Sorry to throw the numbers out at you, but you're at Oxford. I think you're smart <laughs> enough to catch it. Um, so uh, the, the picture then is that um, we, we have hunger that's not exactly... In, it's increasing in absolute numbers. We have a proportional trending downward, which is fine. But actually, in 2017, really, should we be talking about close to a billion people living in hunger when there is enough food produced globally. So we have a massive distribution problem. On top of that, we have an issue related to uh, conflict. And the increase, the, uh, that uptake in hunger over the last two years, frankly, also has to do with the conflicts that we have seen, the massive displacement of people. So we now have 65 million people globally that are displaced from their homes, usually as a result of conflict of some kind. So that's uh, Syria, Yemen, um, Northeast Nigeria, um, South Sudan, etc. Displacement drives, um, displacement related to conflict drives hunger. The other thing, causal factor that we're seeing that's changing is climate change. And people are being uh, affected both in terms of their um, ability to produce because their environment is, is degraded uh, or they're actually experiencing. Um, the, um, some other form of, of displacement or disruption to livelihoods because of desertification or other impacts related to climate change, including extreme weather events, like the last three days. Um, so it's, um, what we see is um, a disturbing trend that is um, uh, both that chronic picture and the acute picture that need new approaches and need a new effort globally because the globe has set a target that we will end hunger by 2030. It is one of the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that was agreed in September 2015 that we would end hunger by 2030. Every member state of the UN agreed to that. So if we don't accelerate, we're not going to make it. Can I add something to it? <clears throat> so apart from, from uh, hunger, there is a more general uh, challenge. Um, so at the moment, we're sourcing 2% uh, of our food from the ocean. Um, even though it represents more than 70% of the planet. Uh, we're also getting most of our protein from animal and not from, from plants. So uh, if we keep on eating this way, we're going to need four planets in 2050, which even if Elon Musk speeds up, we're not going to be, we're not going to be having four planets in 2050. So that's the, the big overall challenge that is out there, and, and is one of the reasons why uh, you know, I'm so interested in, 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 in seaweed as a source, because... 
if you want to shift from the land to the ocean and from animal to plants, you get plants from the ocean and that's seaweed. Yeah. Would you like to add anything to that, Thanks for the as well. I, I would like to add um, a point of not only on food, so not only think about what you can bite, but also um, potable water, or general access to water. And um, I think the, the really interesting thing about it is that so much of the health issues are related to this directly. I can just give you the story of I've, I've been spending the last three months in, in Cape Town, where it's um, they're facing like a severe water um, crisis in the sense of that. All the water that they use are usually coming from, from dams. And the dams are just simply running out of water and the government wasn't acting fast enough to build desalination plants and stuff like this. When you think about the come about two oceans and they don't have enough water, it's just like, what the heck is going on? Um, but it's, it's really true, it's happening. So that, well now, the, what they call is uh, day zero. What's happening on day zero is that simply the taps will run dry. And you have to think about it's, a, uh, it's about four million people living there. So it, if it's going to happen, it's going to be the first Metropole in that sense that is going to run out of water. And there was just another article, I think, by CNBC or someone. Um, it's just saying that another 11 cities, like big cities, even Tokyo is, is part of this, are going to yeah, face this if they don't act fast. And then you think about, like, I mean, for sure, you have poor and rich, is, is, you see it there um, in Cape Town, but it's still a rich city in that sense, and where people don't think about running out of water. So you, I mean, there's the other topic of like, okay, um, there are areas where you have access to water, but like mainly women are going to walk there every day, three to six hours to get it. So it's all about productivity. That's a different topic there. But normally you don't think that it will hit you. But what pe people there didn't realize, bankers and everyone there, right? That like, now they just open the tap and there's nothing coming out of it. And they didn't, they didn't know like what to do. So people were like, like this, just helpless. And the security plan, or the rescue plan basically of the government was to set up 200 uh, water pickup stations around the city where you can go every day with your with a container and get 25 liters per day per person. I don't know, what do you think, like how much liters of water do you use in every day, on average? Anyone? Just guess it. Call it in. 200. 500. 80. 50. All right. So I think the US average 400 something. Um, what they did there was, I think it was 100, 200, 150, 200, something like this. So they um, went like step by step, they were trying to cut back uh, water consumption. So the goal was 87 liters a day, um, what they wanted to reach. Um, so the city is using, I think, 600 million liters a day. And uh, when you then were thinking about it, one of the desalination plants that they're working on would actually produce 2 million liters a day. It's, it's not happening much. But, you know, like it's. Matter of time, it's a matter of preparation, it's a matter of yeah, educating the people, especially on, and I think this is a big part of you know, um, is how we use like the resource that we have. And without water, there's no life. And and that's something that hits you pretty, pretty fast. And I think it's not about drinking, um, but it's I think for me that the biggest problem was like um, just flushing the toilet. Because this is what people simply have to do. If you can't flush the toilet anymore, then you will run into quite some problems especially on the health side, that you just don't know how to handle. That's just to add to the whole thing. Okay. Thanks, Tim. So just to pick up on that, like sustainability within the food system is a huge issue. Um, so but what's really driving it? So, so we look at the statistics, we find that like a third of the world's fresh water is going to the animal agriculture industry, for example, 
and the way we use water within both plant and animal agriculture is not very efficient. Um, so what exactly is driving those issues and how are entrepreneurs solving those problems today? <laughs> So what your question is, what's driving sustainability issues in the food system? Um, I mean, there's, I guess there's a lot of different things. One is growing food uses a lot of resources and our planet. It's just a fact we're running out of resources. And we've, I mean, it, it, I guess this is all like a perfect complex scenario, right? Like we have growing populations and limited resources. We only have one planet. Like he said, we're going to need four. If you do the math, it just doesn't, you know, there's only so much you can grow on that. Um, when you're making food, growing food, processing food, transporting food, it's not just the impact of that food. Um, you know, if we're talking about water, there's so much embedded water in meat or growing plants and so on, we, all, we know that. Um, growing an apple requires soil, energy, labor, water, nutrients, and so on. So all those things are embedded behind it and they have an impact on our, envir our environmental um, systems. Um, and then another thing I think that that feeds into that, which is which is less than the physical side, is how we value food and how we look at the food system. You know, a lot of us have become completely disconnected from the food system. We don't really know what it takes to, to grow food. So, I mean, I come at this from a food waste angle, but it, it's across the board. If you don't value food, um, you don't really think about how you're purchasing, like what the impact of your purchasing decisions are. You don't really care about what happens to it if you throw it away. Um, so this disconnect of not really knowing what actually it takes to to grow a carrot or I don't know. Like if you grow your own food, you're more, much more or less likely to waste it. I don't know if anyone here that's like a growing vegetables or whatever in their garden. Um, you're much more precious about 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 what that that food is. Um, so it's our, it's our attitude to food as well, which is really needs to change, and our understanding of, of what it takes. Um, water and food is what keeps us alive. So it's quite, it's quite mesmerizing how, you know, from 50, 60 years ago, we were so, not we, because I wasn't there, but um, society was so precious about food and not wasting food and rationing and so on. And then now, in our society, we're just, you know, so, it's such a throwaway culture and very disposable culture about everything. Um, it's quite, yeah, it's fascinating how cultures have changed so quickly, actually. Can I just add one thing? Because Ilana works in, like, the food waste issue in the developed world. Um, in the so-called developing world, um, there's this also a food waste issue, but it's completely different. So 30 to 40 percent of food in developed world um, is wasted. 30 to 40 percent in developed world is wasted because of um, uh, usually inefficient market infrastructure, uh, insufficient storage solutions in post-harvest situations, um, and other basic characteristics of market failure. Um, and so, one of the issues around sustainability is that you know people end up. Uh, you know, large parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, are supported by subsistence or are subsistence farmers, a large part of the population. Um, it's ironic that if they have a bad year, they live in hunger. If they have a good year, they don't really get a boost because they can't get their excess produce to market efficiently and, and get the benefit from that. So it's, we call that the good year problem. Um, and so we've got to start looking at 
the way food systems in those kinds of contexts actually work and really figure out what is going to holistically address some of these issues and get those markets working properly. Thank you, Robert. Um, so let's talk a bit about solutions, because it's a bit depressing to keep talking about the scale of the problem and how complex it is. Um, so what are the really exciting issues and like, solutions that you're seeing people develop these days? So you're coming from a circular economy perspective, um, trying to look at how we can basically keep the, the system growing instead of like getting the food wasted and getting out of the system and then keeping it back in the system. So can you tell us more about what you're doing? Sure. Um, so the way we do it is that we work with, so in the in developer world, 50, well, so of that 30, 40% of all food is wasted, about 50% of the waste of the food we waste um, in developing in developed countries, sorry, is in the supply chain, and about 50% is after the shop and at home. Um, so we work on the first 50%. Um, so we work with farmers directly and the supply chains of larger retailers, uh, large food companies, and we use produce that they would otherwise discard and send to landfill or anaerobic digesters. Um, and their food gets wasted for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, I won't go into that because we're moving on past the depressing stuff. Um, so on solutions, I mean, the thing is, and this goes back to what I was talking about, value in food. Like, actually, these big companies, for them, wasting, you know, 22, I'm giving an example from December, wasting 22 tons, 22, 20, yeah, 22 tons of bananas, which is basically like nothing. Um, this is like the scale that we're talking about. This is like one day, one large retailer was just like, we're going to discard 22 tons of bananas because we can't find a solution for it. Um, but there are solutions. There's companies like mine, but there's you know there's others um, that are doing things about food waste, and you need it at different levels. So you need different solutions for different parts of the problem. So if you're looking at food waste specifically, you need companies like ours to work with earlier on, like the farmers and so on. But then you need redistribution charities or um, yeah, basically things like that. I work on the supermarket level. You need behavioral campaigns for people to stop wasting food at the home level. Um, and then if you move out of food waste, I mean, the things I'm excited about are kind of alternatives to meat, alternatives to dairy. Um, there's a huge growth in, well, like seaweed is a cool thing, but then, you know, there's plenty of insects, um, protein powder, and so on growing in Europe. And that's quite interesting because obviously, People eat insects in other parts of the world, but um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how developed countries take that on. I think it'll probably be in a way of um, like you're trying to make people eat seaweed without them thinking it's seaweed. I think with insects, it'll probably be the same. Um, we were talking earlier about um, you know lab-grown meat. There's there's a lot of cool things happening, um, and I guess we just have to find a way to accelerate that because time is running out. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm so optimistic, despite all the doom scenarios, is that some of the solutions um, are really close by, and they can they can be found in nature very very easily. Let me just quickly share how I came up with the idea for for my company. Um, I was in Ibiza in a, in a restaurant, and I ordered a seaweed salad. I didn't know I didn't know anything about seaweed, but it sounded exotic. And I got my plate, uh, and I couldn't find the seaweed, so I was pissed off. And um, I asked my, my wife and, and the rest of my family, guys, have you seen uh, the seaweed? Because I can't find it. 
And my wife looked, you know, she pointed at the green pasta, the spinach tagliatella on my plate. She said, I think that must be it. And I said, you're nuts. And I went to the chef and the chef said, well, your wife is actually right. This is a special kind of seaweed and it grows on the rocks looking like green pasta. And the interesting thing is that, um, you know, I made, when I finally found it, I, I simply made a bolognese sauce. I tossed it, tossed it on top. I gave it to my kids. I didn't tell them anything. And I just waited to see if they would survive. And then um, <laughs> they not only survived, but they, uh, they were actually quite happy with the food. And then I told them, and they were like, yeah, so what? Because they had no conception of seaweed and what it was. And the interesting thing is that um, after I started doing research, I found that there were 10,000 species of seaweed. And I thought maybe there's other cool things as well that, that don't look like pasta, but like something else. And, then we found a, a seaweed that if you fry it, it turns into green crispy bacon. And, and the, the funny thing is, this is not you know, high tech. This is just nature. It's just out there. There's billions of tons of seaweed that are accessible and they're everywhere. And I think this is what is so cool about, um, uh, about facing these challenges. People get more creative and they, they start improvising. You get entrepreneurs, you get other institutions, people working together. So I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic that uh, we will find high-tech and very low-tech solutions to all of these challenges. What, what would actually happen if everybody would eat seaweed? What would happen to the oceans? Let me explain what would happen if we would do something else with uh, seaweed. Because one of the big problems uh, of um, uh, the climate is, is cows, as everybody knows. And it's not they're, they're farting, it's actually they're burping. We read, we read that last night at dinner. So the methane that they're producing doesn't come from the farting of the cows, but it comes from the burping of the cows. So now you know. Uh, and if they would eat seaweed, that would drop by 50%. So um, it's not just what happens when we start eating seaweed, when we start feeding it to the cows as well. Um, what would happen is, um, uh, two, I think 50% of all carbon dioxide in the world is captured by seaweed. So if we start eating more seaweed, we can capture much more carbon dioxide. That's one thing. On the other side, there's a challenge. How do you, because you have to farm it, because um, you, you won't be able to just grab it out of nature and keep ecosystems alive. So one of the challenges is how do we do that in a better way than we've been doing that with agriculture? And uh, what, what is fascinating is that uh, I, I spoke with a professor in, in Holland who said that there are huge reserves of nutrients on the ocean floors that are not being used. And in some places, there's a current that brings them up to the, the surface. And he said, those are the places where we, we will be farming our, our seaweed. And then he said, uh, you know, if we only take a space of uh, two times Portugal, I think is what he said, which is less than half a percent of all the oceans, we have enough protein for the entire world population. So that gives you a little bit of perspective on uh, how possible it is to, to uh, unlock this source of food. Thanks for that. Um, so let's talk about seaweed and insects. Gets me thinking about how um, these alternatives are kind of changing the way we eat. So, I mean, there's clean meat technology coming up right now. So there's lab meat, lab meat, there's eggless eggs, milkless milk. So how do you think our plates are going to evolve over the next few decades? So are we going to be eating more alternatives? Will we just find more efficient ways to make more of what we're already eating? Or will we even need food at all? So there's like companies like Soylent 
for just creating like meal repl replacement shakes. So you get all your nutrients from the milkshake. So we're not even eating any food. So what do you think? Um, I think it's all going to happen uh, in parallel. There, there's not going to be one path. Um, personally, I don't see myself you know, eating shakes for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not going to be eating just seaweed. So, uh, no, sorry. No. Um, so I think, I think uh, the cool thing is that there's going to be so many options. Like we enjoy our cuisines now as well. I mean, people have the, uh, we had um, the Just Eat uh, explaining to all, you know, all the different cuisines that are now available. I think all these different options are going to be interesting and they will, uh, and I'm actually looking forward to having uh, food that is ugly uh, and has been taken from food waste and new kinds of categories of food and uh, more technological innovations. Uh, for me, that's just, you know, such a, a wealth of different sources, and that could be the diversity of food in, in, in the future. And to me, that's just fun. I, I think it's, it starts with, with us here in the first world. It's, I mean, it's always two things, right? You can start here and be more aware of the whole thing and, and change your diet and so on. Um, on the other side, you have people that are just hungry all the time, so this is a different topic to talk about. But um, I think it's, it's, I mean, I love to eat my steak, right? So absolutely, I don't want to miss it in the future, but it's like, do I need it every day? For sure not. So on, I, I mean, I would be willing to invest in it. Like if I think <laughs> it's really a fantastic piece of meat and I have to pay more for it, absolutely fine. Um, if everybody would think about it about like this, then I think a big part of the problem would already be even solved or we would be on an even better way. Um, on the other side, we have to think about there are more people coming and we have to feed more, so we need other ways of producing food in that sense and that's I think would be great to hear from you as well on more the distribution part as you were saying like food can be distributed in a specific way when it comes to water on the other side what I've seen is like you always so it doesn't make sense to transport water over the over the globe basically so you always need like a specific solution if there's an issue on, on a local level so if you want to get active basically in the, in the, in the water thing with your own company whatever you're planning on think about local solutions right um, and, and this is a difference, I think, here in the technical issues. But yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about what's going on in, in the lab-grown food. And I don't know if anyone of you knows Hempel Creek. Um, they want to produce X without X. And um, so what they're, I tasted it, like, I think it was like four or five years ago when they were really young companies, small company. Now they're like, have their mayonnaise without X. They have it in all the big shops and so on where you can buy it in the US. Um, and what they were working on there was already a scrambled egg. And it was not about the taste, it tastes phenomenal, but it was like the texture. And I think this, this is the thing where it will take time um, to advertise these new kind of yeah, technologies in that sense, if you want to say. Um, let the customer build trust in it. Um, they get, have to get educated, so to say, on the taste of it, even though they're trying to mimic it as much as possible. Um, it's something, I mean, we have to love it in the end to get the food because I mean, eating is just like part of our culture. And that's why, I mean, I like the guys from Soylent. They're doing pretty cool stuff. And some friends are just eating Soylent or drinking it, whatever you want to call it. I never would do this. Um, so it's really about like, how can you make it and keep it as an experience as we want to have it. And it's also the place where like families come together and so on. So it has to be something really nice. Um, but yeah, I think there are new, new technologies coming and we just have to, I think we have to support them in the best way we can. And, and, and making them a reality, which still doesn't solve the hungry world on the, on the other side, basically. 
but maybe you can go on the distribution part of it. I'm okay with you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just on that last one, I couldn't agree more. Food is such an integral part of human experience that, you know, when we try, so for example, we tried um, algae and things like that with people uh, uh, we work with, um, but there's a real stubbornness around substituting things uh, if it tastes a little bit different or if the texture is different and, you know, and then the cultural experience is different. But but I do think some of these substitution technologies will become so good that it just won't be apparent to us and then we can keep it in our culture, doing things the way we've done it, but it's just enhanced in, a, in an easier way. But just kind of go back to your previous question on, um, okay, so what are some of the solutions out there? So on, on our side of things, what we look at is, um, uh, again, if I just split a little bit the emergency response work with the more kind of market-based type solutions. On the emergency side, what we look for is anything that will uh, help us get access to people. Um, so that could be unmanned aerial vehicles um, to deliver cargo, but also um, unmanned aerial vehicles and satellite imagery for um, assessing impact of one kind or another in a post-shock situation. And we're looking not only at using those technologies, because we've actually used them already for a few years, but now it's getting into artificial intelligence-powered uh, machine reading of those images so that we can take a massive amounts of data and read that and imagery and read that for what's going on in those images and get the kind of analytical uh, insights back so that we can make better decisions much faster. Um, and I mentioned the cash programs that we have. so. Um, we uh, are experimenting now with blockchain, um, the back end of our cash payment systems, to make it more efficient. And so we have a program in Jordan that is reaching 100,000 Syrian refugees um, with a blockchain-based system. And it just it is cutting the cost of the bank fees that were in necessary intermediaries before, but are no longer necessary. And every dollar that we can send, uh, save in the sort of administration of those systems is a dollar we can put in the hands of refugees for the actual program. Um, on the, and we're doing self-driving trucks and a bunch of other fun things, but on the uh, market side, it's looking at where the trend's going with things like universal connectivity. So uh, we see more and more, um, I mean, penetration rates for mobile and, and smartphones are really almost exponential at this point. And so small farmers tend to have cell phones, and almost all small farmers in certain parts of Africa will have smartphones as well, and not just Africa, it's Latin America and Asia as well. Um, and so knowing the problems around market infrastructure, we've started experimenting with things like digital platforms to connect small farmers as producers with buyers and agents that are going to buy the products. And so a farmer doesn't have to then um, hope to find transport to a market that's four or five hours away and hope you find a buyer there that day. Um, you can make the, the, the link online, or sorry, not online, on in a digital platform, which is mobile, um, and then make the transaction in a mutually convenient place. Um, we've also been uh, experimenting with things like uh, sort of Uber for small transporters. So if you wanted to use the services of very like a micro-transporter to get your food somewhere, um, you could do that on a digital platform. Um, and um, 
Uh, interestingly enough, we've experimented with the food waste situation in places like Nairobi, which have our large vegetable exporters, fruit and vegetable exporters, that have the cosmetically rejected foods that stay on the tarmac in the International Airport of Nairobi, and then taking that into the local economy and putting it into our school meals programs and things, so it's sort of micro redistribution uh, efforts and things like that. So uh, maybe stop there. I've got just several more I can talk about. But. That's cool. Thank you, Robert. Um, so clearly, you can see that there's some areas of the food industry that's getting a lot of attention. So, like sustainable sourcing, food tech, and so on. What are the areas that you can see where there's not enough activity? So where would you wish to see more entrepreneurial effort? I see so much activity here. I mean, um, I, I go to all these um, food and ag tech conferences and stuff, and I'm just amazed by what's happening. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is is farming. Um, and if you look at all the technology that's out developing around farming itself and becoming and getting smaller farmers to get access to better information on getting more out of their crops and you know the timing of their um, of their crops and and the techniques and everything it's, it's looking like in all sections of the food value chain people are starting to wake up and and, and come up with new ways of reducing waste increasing yields uh, you know it's uh, people that are developing crops now that can grow on saline soil that was never possible before so it's potatoes that are growing on saline soil which is a, a huge thing because in certain areas of the world uh, you know people cannot uh, do any agriculture unless they got you know crops on saline soil um, so uh, you know of course there's probably lots of stuff that we don't have yet or that there's not being developed but it, I can't see one specific area unless there, there's one thing, but it's you know it's not so much the feeding, but it's it's the the, the packaging that you you talked about, and you are very early adopter of that. We we found it very difficult to find sustainable packaging when we started the company, and uh, that's an area where I haven't seen as much uh, progress I, as I would have hoped to see. I think you'll probably see that very soon. Yeah. Um, there's lots. But yeah, I have an area that I, I thought about when you asked now, um, which is not really where would I want to see entrepreneurs doing something about it, because I'm not really sure what the answer is, but it's maybe something that's not enough in, or that I don't see enough in conversation or like in the kind of public awareness. And it's um, relating, which is a point that I touched on in the beginning, relating food and nutrition to actually health well-being, but also mental health, um, and linking that to actually, there are studies that have been made that show the nutritional value of certain foods has decreased since incredibly since like the 60s, 70s. So nutrition in a tomato from the 60s is completely like now they're pretty much just like water vessels that are wrecked. Um, and so we need, you know, we don't just need calories; we actually need nutrition, um, and that. I don't really see many conversations about that. Like what, like how do we, what's the most efficient way to get real nutrition to people? Um, and I don't, yeah, I'm not really sure what the answer is, but I, I feel there's not, I don't, I don't see as much, or as many people or organizations talking about that, at least in the developed world. I'm sure it's a very different thing in developing countries when, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you see that much more, but in, in this kind of 
developed startup world, like I don't really see that much. And, and you know, like we are feeding people in developed countries, but actually at the same time, like so many diseases are increasing and so on. And that's largely due to our nutrition and the fact that we eat a lot of crap. Can I quickly add to that one? Sure. Um, in, in where we work, um, I'd like to see more activity in basically adapting business models. So if you look at the cutting edge of smart agriculture today, it's incredible what farmers are able to do with essentially precision systems, GPS-linked um, systems so that they know exactly how much fertilizer to put on which part of the field and how much moisture is in there and whatever. Um, if we can adapt those kinds of technologies in an, to an accessible way for smaller farmers, so I'm talking about low-cost soil sensors and some low-cost access to the data and the analytics associated with it, then you can start to build the kind of the, the production, well, you can increase production, you can build a production history, so you can start to build insurance products, you can start to offer financial services with the mobile phones that they have, and you start to build out an ecosystem that begins to have a better, uh, well, much better efficiency to it, and essentially we do the leapfrog. Uh, the reason why landlines were never really put in all of Africa um, in, for telephones, well, why would you? Because you can put cell towers up much cheaper and faster. So you just, we can skip a lot of crap that we've gone through in the rest of the world and just jump to some of these things if we have the accessibility of it for people who are at a quite a low income. Thank you. Uh, yeah, there's another fascinating area, I think, which is uh, if you look at food, there is a, a cost to food, to the planet, and you know, I don't see a lot happening there, so I think it would be really interesting to consider that there, you know, the price of food should reflect the eco-footprint of the food, because that would enable people um, to, much, you know, to make decisions on shifting their, 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 their eating habits much quicker if there is an incentive to do it that way. And unfortunately, that is what is what is needed. The other side of food is also very interesting because um, the healthcare is becoming one of the big costs of society. And interestingly enough, the, the medical profession, um, they're usually just fighting symptoms. But more and more, there's people now standing up saying, listen, we can, we can prevent diseases from occurring if we just feed each other, if we just have different feeding or eating habits, and we can prevent most of the modern diseases like diabetes by just having a different different diet. And I think these two sides of the food system are, they have such big impact, and uh, I think it's part of the discussion, but I think that awareness is still quite low of, of how big that impact is. Thank you. So I'd like to open up the, sorry, <laughs> I'd like to open up the floor for questions, but before that, just... To wrap up, um, do you have any advice for us as consumers or as entrepreneurs on how we can be part of the solution and not part of the problem going forward? Just be curious. Um, you know, everyone in this room is very smart and they're in this session for a reason. Just be curious and go read about the food system. I mean, that's, you know, years ago, that's how I got interested in it. I just started reading about it and all aspects of it. Um, the sustainability aspect, the health aspect, nutrition, develop, developing, and so on. I mean, there's books, documentaries, I don't know, just read out. It's not, you know, I don't have a perfect knowledge. When I make purchasing decisions, I don't have all the information I need to have, but I'm trying to educate myself every day. So I think if you're just curious about what you eat, then uh, you'll make the right decisions at that time, at least. Uh, 
We just started a crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> so there's a very easy way to join. Um, I just think like the field is so big, and if you if you think about the future and where you want to be active in, it's just the problem is getting bigger in that sense. So it's definitely businesses will be made there with money in and so on. There's like a lot to do and many many ways to tackle it. Not only on the side like again if you think about water, it's like there areas where there's too much water, there's areas where there's not enough water, so you can tackle it from whatever kind of side you want, just go ahead and do it. But I, I have a question on the other side, like how many of you, or is there any one of you who's trying to grow, not all the food, but some food at home? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, not bad, yeah. I think this is part of the whole education piece where I think more has to happen, it's like the question you raised before. It's just like having the experience again, just like to do your own stuff, even if it's just like a little bit of some tomato at home or something. Just experience it. Um, I think it will change your mind on the whole thing. Yeah. And if, if there are more companies just putting up like some projects like this, or even, and this is what I think is really cool, as there are communities also in the UK where they um, bring like the whole city basically in into city-based projects to produce their own food and herbs and all those kind of things, um, which is super cool, which again bringing the people together. And their education goes from the kids up to the adults. And uh, I think this is, this is the, these are the systems that we need way more so that we're aware of the whole thing, but also we can connect it with a social experience again. Um, and then we can understand way more what's happening around the globe and get more active in the whole thing. Okay, three quick things. Uh, one, the, there are some estimates that say that hunger costs the world $3.5 trillion a year in lost productivity, et cetera, et cetera. So there are businesses to be made there. That's undernutrition, not overnutrition. So there's uh, some work there, and I've already mentioned that, kind of getting interested in sort of um, accessibility of business models in other parts of the world. Um, second thing is, I mentioned at the beginning, we have an in-house uh, innovation accelerator. So if any of you are working on startups in the food space, we'd like to hear from you. Go to innovation.wfb.org and look at how you can apply to the accelerator. Uh, for support, we're interested in working with startups that are doing what I just said in number one, which is moving business models or, or finding local solutions from local entrepreneurs um, to food system issues. Number three, we have this crowdfunding campaign. It's called, it's called Share the Meal. Um, it's available in every app store in the world. It is a, it's a micro-donation crowdfunding platform for the World Food Program operations. Um, it allows you to basically donate as little as 40 euro cents per day, which covers the cost of uh, feeding one child one day for one day in one of our programs, or you can also give for a week, a month, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, thanks. Cool. Thank you very much. And we give a